So we're starting a new series um, over these next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the idea of what we're calling the walk of life. I suppose last week, well, we've decided to throw it under the umbrella of uh, this series as well. It was either in or out, and it was out last week, and it's in this week. So it's going to be helpful if you haven't heard last week. um, Maybe you can nip onto the internet, download, and have a listen to it. One of the things that Jesus said as we were looking at one of the demands that he made of us last week is that we uh, commit our lives as a first priority to seeking to enter through the narrow door. In other words, that makes a massive statement about our lives, what they're there for, what our life is all about, that there is an objective, there is a purpose to life, which generally speaking, in our natural way of thinking, we don't immediately embrace. We don't think about that, we don't see that as our first purpose of life. So we've got this new series, The Walk of Life. I suppose punctuation is really important. Well, you can't really punctuate a statement like that, but uh, maybe you could... um, you could emphasize in different ways. So what is it? Is it the walk of life? Or is it the walk of life? Or is it the walk of life? And if you can work out what I'm saying there, you're brilliant. (laughs) But it is important. Which one is it? Because we can all, in fact, um, those of you who are old enough to remember, November 1985, it was released by Dire Straits, uh, a song called The The Walk of Life. It was a kind of typical upbeat 1980s uh, rock pop song, uh, which had dramatically incisive words like this, Bebop-a-lula, baby, what I say. That's The Walk of Life, according to Dire Straits. However, Right in the very last phrase of that song, it does say something quite interesting. It says this, And after all the violence and double talk, there's just a song in all the trouble and the strife. You do the walk of life. You do the walk of life. Interesting. So even in the most kind of uh, schmaltzy, glitzy, dire straits type uh, rock pop song, There's this little statement which is acknowledging that there is violence, double talk, there is challenges to our lives, and therefore we need to work out how to live our lives in the light of those challenges. The answer, according to Dire Straits, is a song. In other words, our sense of purpose and our hope in life is some sort of uh, upbeat, kind of keep going, enjoy life, make the most of it kind of thing. I actually look at that and think how poignant, how empty, that that is the fulfillment of life, the best that it can be. Jesus demands, as a character in history in the claims that he made, whether we accept him for his claims or whether we deny his claims, he at least demands this of us, that we stop and we start to think in bigger, more important, more significant ways in terms of what life is all about. I'm really delighted that you're able to be here and if you, if you 
maybe just starting to work out what the Christian faith is all about, one of the things that we see is this character Jesus, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, who many think has become a significant teacher or a moral example or all of those things. Let me just start by saying he made one dramatic claim first and foremost. He claimed to be no less than the Son of God, God himself, present in time, in our world. In other words, the idea of the the God of the Bible, an eternal being, a God who presents himself in what the Bible doesn't use this term, but people have described the way the Bible uh, captures the idea of of God as a triune God, the Trinity God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you've heard that idea of God according to the Christian faith. One God in three persons, which is mysteriously one in being and yet presented in three persons beyond our understanding. And that God, an eternal God, comes into time. That's the claim that he makes. If that claim is true, then everything else that he says has significance, doesn't it? You know, we can't ignore it if that's what he claims. And he claims to to be that and therefore says, make sure that you are working out what life is all about, how to live, how to walk. And so as we think about this idea of the walk of life, I want to suggest this to you. The way that we're emphasizing it is like this. It is about the walk. In other words, how we live, how we walk. The picture that we've got up there is a kind of a pathway, giving the idea of traveling in a direction, traveling on a journey, living and walking in a particular way as a result of coming to life. That's really important as we, as we think about the claims of Jesus. If he says, make sure that you pursue entering through a narrow door, he's talking about life and he's saying live life on the basis of life, real life. So what does that look like? What does it actually mean to make every effort? What is effort? We're starting here this afternoon by saying that effort is about walking by identity. Walking by identity. We live according to our identity. We live according to our identity. It's something which um, a, a lot of sociologists are really latching on to, beginning to see that that's true. That the way we present ourselves, the way we spend our time, the way we live, the way we interact, the way we behave, the way we are as people, the goals, ambitions, desires and hopes, things that we hate, things that we love, the way we conduct ourselves is by very often... In fact, most cases, it is about who we believe we are. Who we believe we are. Who we are convinced 
we are as people shapes the way we live. In other words, if I have a view of myself, then I am going to walk in this life in a particular way. In this particular text, Peter is writing to a group of people who he says right at the beginning of his letter, you are the people of God scattered throughout the known world at that time. So he's, he's writing this letter in a way which is going to be copied and it's going to be sent around lots of different people. And lots of those people are going to be just like us. They're going to be people who haven't had a heritage of being brought up in the kind of pattern of Judaism. They're going to be people who have recently come to terms with what Jesus claims. They're going to be new believers. And he's writing to new believers and he's essentially saying this. When you've worked out who you are, when you understand you are, your identity, your identity will shape the way you then walk. So understand who you are. Pursue who you are. Be who you are. In fact, he would even suggest, given, give, give a, a challenge to us, that would say something along the lines of this. If you are not living in this way, then either you don't understand your identity, so get a grip to, with your identity, or you, are, you aren't actually that person anyway. You're not that person. So here we've got this particular text, and I want to identify three things. Firstly, it is a life-shaping identity. Secondly, it is a new identity. And thirdly, it is a, an illuminating identity. So what we're going to be looking at. The first is a life-shaping identity. Look at verses 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's an amazing little section that. Saying this, get rid of that kind of behavior. I just want to stop a minute and just ponder. Those descriptions, some of the language sounds somewhat ancient. Uh, malice, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Not generally the kind of language that we have in our everyday use. But I reckon that all of us understand what that language actually is. We know what that means. We know what malice is, anger, hatred, frustration. We know what deceit is. Very often we have a clear understanding of deceit because we feel aggrieved because we are on the receiving end of deceit. Very often that's our way of understanding what that means and it's poignant and it's powerful and it's incisive because it hurts. And what, what Peter is saying is, now, listen, live differently. Don't get rid of that kind of behavior. 
Don't live in that way. It is a life-shaping identity. Do you see that? We are living differently because, I guess by nature what he's suggesting is, by nature we have a tendency to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. That's our nature. That's what we tend to be. Interesting. I think we live in a world, no, I'm convinced. I don't think, I'm convinced. Our Western society has convinced us, persuaded us, that all of the challenges of our behavior, all of the uncomfortable ways in which we live, things that we can describe with those words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, all of that kind of behavior, it's not our fault. We're not responsible for it. We are victims We're victims of our circumstances, we're victims of our conditions, we're victims of, well, if you read a lot of the academic literature on this subject, it's a great debate. There's a huge debate arguing that actually our society, the world that we live in has, to coin a phrase, we live in a medicalized society, a society which says, All of the problems that we have are not our fault. They are the result of all of the issues that invade our being. The problems that we have are because of this condition and that condition and that environment and that situation. And Peter says, listen, just stop. Stop. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. In a way, what he actually starts and says is, look, (laughs) let's not even at this point debate where it's come from. Let's not even get into that debate. Just get rid of it. Live differently as a result of who you are, your identity. Live differently. Thinking about something like slander. The idea of talking about somebody's life or the way they're living or the way they're being and and criticizing their character and their nature. Of course, we we probably would say, well, I, I, I try to commit myself to not doing that. I don't live like that. I was listening to a radio program last night, fascinating radio program. It's talked about the issues of the press, the challenges of the press. One of the points that it made was this, that when we live in a celebrity-embracing culture, which seems to give us the right to identify to kind of invade the lives of all of those people up there, it inevitably means that we have a kind of ripple-down effect of that kind of attitude. 
which says that I inevitably have a right to invade the lives and, and assess the lives of other people around me. People who perhaps aren't in that celebrity world. In other words, the, the, the kind of behaviors that we exhibit are far closer to us far more a part of our being and therefore far more representative of what Peter is saying, get rid of. Now, how does he say get rid of it? He says get rid of it like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. It's a fantastic picture, isn't it? Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying, maybe for some of us, that's something that we need to come back to. Because we need to stop and realize and think, do you know what? I'm actually, I'm a grown-up baby. (laughs) I I, I really need to get back to the fact that I need to be infant-like before the God of all creation. I need to get back to just remembering that the Lord is good. Maybe for some of us, we're right at the very beginning of our Christian walk. Maybe for some of us, we're looking on and saying, well, if I committed myself to the Christian faith, what does it look like? It looks like this. It looks like tasting of God in Jesus and loving it. Just loving it. You know, one of the things that I think we've got confused, I I believe, I want to make this really clear, it is completely clear that the Bible makes all sorts of claims of truth. It does make those claims of truth. But in understanding all of those different truths, coming to terms, if you like, with what the Bible teaches, it is really easy to lose sight of the fact that we are here to know and to love God. And what Peter is saying is, don't get wrapped up first and foremost on all of those propositions, all of those truths. Just taste the Lord and realize that He is good. You know, when we grow up, some of you post-Christmas might be thinking about things like calories. And uh, there's all sorts of different ways to think about calories. You can do calories on your phone now. You can do uh, calories by points. You can do calories by paying a fortune to uh, an organization that encourages you every week with a bit of a rah-rah and fantastic, you've done really well. There's all sorts of different ways of propositionally thinking about calories and assessing, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Let me take this in. Let me not take this in. Does a baby think like that? Does a baby think like that? No. A baby just drinks that milk and revels in it. When we take those truths of God and we start assessing them and drawing them down to our level and saying, let me take that, let me take that, let me take that, let me think about that, let me assess that, we lose sight of just sitting back and saying, let me just taste that God is good Let me put myself in that position of being a little 
child. Can I encourage you at the beginning of this year, you want to walk the walk of life. One of those steps that we need to keep coming back to, keep reminding ourselves is, I need to remember to love and enjoy Jesus. I need to remember to love and enjoy God. I need to remember to love and enjoy that I am just filled with the Spirit of God. I need to remember my identity. In other words, I need to stop obsessing about all of the intricate details and lie back and drink the milk. You know, I want to encourage us. We want to walk, then lie back and drink. Our identity is wrapped up by that life-changing, shaping identity. Secondly, we see that it is a new identity. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in stone a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected, the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. It's all about stones this, isn't it? All about rocks. It's really fairly straightforward when we start to get our heads around it. Jesus is essentially, or Peter is saying, is essentially this. Way back in the Old Testament, Jesus, the promised one of God, God is promised as a stone. Why a stone? Why a stone? Why would Jesus be promised as a stone? Because architecturally, stones are key to building. Cornerstone is one of those key building points and either a cornerstone, sometimes that keystone in a, in a lintel described in different ways. Stones for building a key. It's as though God is taking a picture which the people would have known really well, the idea of what? A temple. The, the, the temple is the idea of the building because it was a really important building. It was a building that was important because it signified the presence of God. It was that way of saying, God is with us because we've got the temple and because we've got the presence of God in that temple. What happened was that that temple was destroyed because God always had in plan that it would be destroyed because there was another temple that was going to be built. And the other temple that was built is the living temple. The old temple in the Old Testament is the dead temple, the temple of stones, the temple that can be knocked down and by itself, without being rebuilt, can't come back to life. But Jesus says, 
I am the stone. I'm the keystone of that new temple. Now listen, he says, that stone is rejected. (laughs) It's an odd-shaped stone. It's a stone that doesn't look right. Jesus is saying, the stone that is rejected is me. I am the one who's rejected. Do you remember? Do you see how that works? According to the the big picture of the Bible, the temple in the Old Testament, a physical building, gets knocked down, but God has always promised a new temple. And the temple is Jesus. But he gets rejected. He gets abandoned. He gets kicked out. And what we see here is that that is what was always going to be the case. Isaiah said it was going to be the case. He is going to be abandoned, but... He comes back. And you, your identity, who we are as believers in Jesus, are stones built into that temple, built on that temple rock of Jesus. So here's this stone, which in Jesus' life is abandoned, rejected, got rid of, He comes back to life. He establishes himself as the eternal message to this world. And he says this, every single one who believes in me gets built into this new temple. It's new stones. So you and I are spiritually cut, shaped, built into a temple built on Jesus, the cornerstone. We become what? Therefore, according to the temple idea, we become what? The living presence of God in this world. We become exactly what the temple was in the past. Here's the amazing thing. This is why the Christian faith doesn't have any physical, geographical location. Other religions have a physical geographical location. We go to certain places because that is the geographical location of that place of worship. That's where the temple is. That's where the the location is. We have to travel to that place. And the Christian faith becomes a temple that appears throughout the world. So what's your identity? What's my identity? I am knit in, I am built in to the temple of God, present in this world. That's who I am. Therefore, that new identity, verse 9, demands that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, this temple, don't forget, Peter is writing to people who are spread everywhere, geographically, thousands of miles between them all. And he says, you are all this temple. So he says to you and me, if we believe in Jesus, 
in Castleford in the 21st century, today, we are built into that temple. And there's a temple that is represented everywhere where Jesus is loved, honored, embraced, magnified, held high, and where we build our lives on him. Here's the other thing. The walk of life, therefore, according to that picture, the walk of life is not an independent walk, is it? It can't possibly be. Yes, it is personally embraced, absolutely. So every one of us in here this afternoon are either part of that temple or not part of that temple. We either walking the walk of life, or we are not walking the walk of life. But once we are part of it, we are part of something. We are a part of the temple of God. We are co-dependent. Ever taken a brick out of a wall? The wall doesn't fall down. You can knock a brick out and the wall doesn't fall down because there is a co-dependency. You know, eventually if you pull the foundation bricks out, the wall falls down. But the message of this is that Jesus is the foundation stones. So don't worry about that. It's solid. It's secure. But we live our lives, we walk our walk, our walk of life is co-dependent. In other words, we walk with each other. We walk alongside each other. We are bonded, cemented together. We rely on each other. We cannot walk effectively the walk of life as a loner, as an individual, not associated Because Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone, everything else is built on me, therefore if it's built on me, it must be attached to everything else. We are committed to that. In our 21st century, uh, individualistic, independent culture, that is so contrary to the way we feel comfortable about thinking. I am an island. Uh, Well, I am a rock. I am an island, Paul Simon sang. In other words, I am independent. I I don't want to be attached. And yet the whole message of the Bible is saying we are codependent. Why is that great news? Because when we look at what we are called to be, I realize that I cannot be all of that. I can't be all of that. There are different gifts, there are different skills, there are different responsibilities, there are different ways of being. I can't be all of that. And yet I realize that when I am part of this temple, then my co-bricks deliver in ways that I can't deliver. We become representatives of God in a more effective way by being connected together. Because our purpose and our goal and our responsibility, our perspective and our visibility is to be this, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. In other words, there's a purpose to this temple, there's a purpose to this building, which is to declare God in this world. That's what God's people have always done. And many of us, in our varied gifts, have abilities to do that which I'm not capable of doing. But my frail gifts become my contribution to the overall declaring of God as us as a people. And so we walk the walk of life together. It's an illuminating identity. It's illuminating because of this. He has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's illuminating. In other words, we are called in the light of God to see every aspect of this world, of this life, in a new light. I no longer see it through my eyes, through my light, through my visibility, I reshape, I reorientate myself so that I see it from a new light. In other words, that power and authority and glory which I am now connected to becomes my ability to see life in a different way. Priorities change. Things that are important change. The things that we think are number one are no longer number one. I see it in a different way. But when I see it in a different way, quite honestly, I just want others to see it in that same light. I want to declare in a way which is consistent. I want to walk in a way which is consistent so that others might see the glory of that God who, as we close, who has given us mercy. Look at the way verse 10 closes. Once you were not a people. (laughs) We've lost in our world today the importance of being a people. That sense of identity, that sense of oneness, that sense of who we are. It says, once you weren't a people and now you're a people. Now you've got an identity. Now you know who you are first and foremost. That is who you are first. You're lots of other things. You're all sorts of careers. You're all sorts of family responsibilities. But first and foremost, you're a people. And you are the people of God. You belong to Him. How is that? It's as though the Bible just continuously wants to throw in reminders. How is it that we've become the people of God? Peter does it here. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy.
Maybe that's new to you. Maybe that's something which just rings massive and great bells in your mind. Bells which ring with joy that once I wasn't receiving the mercy of God and now I have. It's as though in one sentence Peter says, listen, don't forget the cross. Don't forget how you've become a people. You've become a people because you've received mercy. Changes everything, doesn't it? You've received mercy from God. Wow. As we start this new year, as we begin this series, I just want us to get focused and remind ourselves at the beginning of this year Am I at that stage in life where I need to recommit myself to the walk of life, to living who I am because I've received mercy?